0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Inclusive Collective, where we share stories and learnings of inclusive people, organizations, and innovation. I'm your co-host, Rob Hadley, a people and culture strategist specializing in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and people analytics. I am joined by Nadia Butt, an organizational development and belonging strategist. Nadia, it's so great to be with you again.
1: I know. Oh, happy Monday. How are you this week?
0: I am always fantastic on Monday. It's my favorite day. Good. Tuesday? Is it? No, t- oh. Tuesday. Tuesday is my favorite. Yeah,
1: I was gonna say not, not enough people love have, for like, Tuesday.
0: Not enough love for <laughs> Tuesday, right? Tuesday is amazing.
1: Tuesday is great, Rob. I I I wanted to share something with you from one of our uh, listeners.
0: Okay, all right, let's hear it. Is so, it uh, one
1: of our listeners. No, it's actually it's really it's <laughs> I'm insightful <just> actually. <laughs> so. <laughs> One of our listeners was listening to our podcast, the episode last week about the Super Bowl. And they wanted um, this is actually a person who has um, a deaf with a capital D Mm. um, child who son who um, actually goes to a school for all deaf students. And they uh, she had shared with me that um, they actually interpret the show or music every year for the Super Bowl. And there's only been one year that the ASL interpreter was shown the whole time when Marlene uh, Matlin Uh, did the National Anthem with Garth Brooks. Okay, Um, And she was sharing that, like, deaf people complain every year. It sucks. And she said that she actually streams it from a site that has both performances side by side. And it's a video service company that, um, you know, kind of offers this service. And I just thought that was really cool to share. And so I I thought... um, I thought we should, you know, kind of retract what we said because I think we made a reference of that. At least I had said I've never seen it before um, because they don't broadcast it. They don't show it on air. So um, I wanted to share that with our audience. Right.
0: Well, I think that confirms that what we thought is that we hadn't seen it and it hadn't got that much attention before. And so I think people yes. I think people liked seeing it. I think people yes. liked the fact that, well, one, I think that the person who performed it did a really great job as well. Yeah. And so it was yeah. just interesting. I think that it'll probably be standard going forward. I don't think that, yes. I think it would be a bad move to take that away going forward.
1: Agree. Totally.
0: Yeah. Awesome. So we got a big show today, Nadia. Should we uh, Should we hit the the details, as they say?
1: Ab- uh, the deets? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> oh, right, so right. Uh, I'll go ahead first here. So. Okay. Denver city councilman, who is par- one of one of them is paralyzed from the chest down, was um was actually asked to hoist himself from his wheelchair onto the debate stage. Um so Chris Hines, a Denver councilman, again, who is paralyzed from the chest down, was asked to um, you know, hoist himself up onto a debate stage from his wheelchair to participate in the council uh people debate uh council debate. Debate mm-hmm. um, The location, which appeared to be uh, held at a dance studio, did not have accessible options for wheelchairs. Um, and so, you know, this is just an interesting kind of story. Terrible story, actually, because I think it just further, you know, confirms how hard it is for folks who um, are, you know, maybe living with a, a disability or there's a barrier to, to have access from a wheelchair stance, and you know this continued challenge that they face, kind of terrible all around. I'll yeah, it's that.
0: just so painfully obvious what should have happened in this case. Yeah, in my opinion, the people that run that debate, they are the or the opponents of the debate—I don't know if it was a bunch of people debating each other—should have just shut it shut it down, really, in solidarity. The idea was, and I, I, I believe, was that if he didn't get on stage, there was going to be a missed deadline, and he would forego some sort of funding or have to cede, yes. the, you know, this this important opportunity, something like that, um, you know. And I think that this is like something that you talk about with your kids, right? Like there's there's some rules that you have to just break, right? There's there's some rules that deserve to be broken, and part of being a leader is figuring out when you have to break those rules. And I think that everyone in this case would have been better off if someone had just stood up and said, you know, even though that that's the statute or that's the rule that we're going by, we're not going along with this. And so, um, I, you know, it's just painfully obvious. This goes along with things like we talked about a couple weeks ago a couple of weeks ago, you know, like as a society, we should have the ability to let things go. Uh, so if someone pulled over for a traffic violation and they run, you don't you don't have to shoot ch- chase them down and shoot them in the back, right? Like you you can just let them go. Just take their car. Right. And, you know, and, and get them next time. Right. They'll come back. Right. We'll, we'll figure it out. So I think that we just have to have a little bit more uh, of the ability to figure out what's right and wrong in these situations and just 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 move on. But it, it is a, it is an yeah, incredible example. When you think about the, the voters uh, in Denver actually elected this person. Right. So so yes. no uh, nothing negative toward the voters here, uh, but you can just see the systemic challenges that people with disabilities face every day and that it just we're every just day. not aware of but we're very ableist society
1: yeah so the good i think the good thing that came out of this is that the dance studio that where the event was being held at did make an apology and recognize how inaccessible their studio actually is so hopefully something good comes out of it where they accommodate for that but yeah i think going back to what you said it's a, we are definitely a more ableist society than anything else and I think we're we're slowly but surely recognizing that we need to be able to make accommodations for other folks yeah
0: horrible story I hope they you know, do better going forward yeah Um. Uh, I have so for my uh, something I wanted to bring attention to I have the it's more like an eat your vegetables type story uh, you know okay. it's <laughs> it's very boring so no the uh, oh. USA Today writers Jessica Gunn and Jamie Fraser. They utilize federal workforce reports, census information, business filings, and other documents to track sluggish progress toward equal opportunity in that S&P 100. And so this is something that mm. I just saw this week. It came out last week. Uh, they discovered that while women and people of color are concentrated at the lowest levels with lower pay, fewer benefits, and fewer opportunities for progression with uh, and, you know in the highest ranks are still predominantly white and male in some of our largest corporations. And so there's no surprise here. I just want to call attention to the right. series of articles because I do think it was significant for USA Today to invest the time and the resources in this piece. Uh, their articles research data on topics as, such as board diversity, Black, Latinas, Asian women in executive roles, gay board members, deep dives on industries such as tech, retail, and banking. And so um, mm. you know, I, I think that uh, you know it's something that all consultants should really just dig through because there's a ton of great information there. Um, a that's big right. part of that inf- that research was getting companies to release their EEO uh, one data, and you know some of the companies that we're all very familiar with would not release the data. So th- companies like yeah. Tesla, Berkshire Hathaway, Disney, and Texas Instruments would not release their data. No surprise on some of those names, but uh, is a, it
1: like their demographic data? That's yep. What yep. The yeah, EEO demographic demographic data.
0: Yeah. yeah, and therefore it shows at different levels of the com- company what the demographic composition. Is, right. And so I think right. it's, so there's a ton of articles that come uh, along with that deep examination. And uh, I think it's just really something that most consultants that are working in DE&I should really comb through and read those those pieces.
1: Sure. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I won't comment too much on this other than the fact that we run into this a lot where leaders are so reluctant to share that data. And it's interesting to me because a lot of the companies that I work with, um, or, or just observed where people are so excited to do um, a, some sort of analysis or assessment, right? Whether it's a survey or just like looking at their HR data demographic, looking at demographic data, looking at other components, doing focus groups and interviews, and then when the findings come about, it's like all of the sudden the reluctancy or fear. I don't, and I I don't know if it's fear, but I'm gonna categorize it as that. Mm-hmm. Um, To want to be transparent and sharing that not only with employees, but publicly. Mm -hmm. And I do absolutely see a trend where um, leaders stop um, kind of not the work, but really that transparency into like, what does this what does this mean for our organization? Um, And so it's interesting because I think there's components of like leading with humility, being transparent, building kind of the foundation of trust to say, like, we're continuously improving. We are continuously looking to get better. Um, we could probably do a whole episode on this. So really great insight. Yeah. I think,
0: yeah. Well, I think that, you know, oftentimes, and so you're you're laying out a situation where they actually do the data work and don't and are reluctant to share and be transparent about it. A lot of times they don't even want to know the answer because if they know the answer then then uh, sometimes, you know, I've been in situations where we do the work, but then we're not allowed to present it to certain levels of of executives because once mm-hmm. they know the outcome. I mean, now, yeah. now they are liable to fix it, right? And so, uh, yeah, so there's like different work, levels right? of the of, of of the reluctance or reticence to be transparent with with this data. And so, um, even even you know, and within this group, the Walgreens Boots did not report, right? Which is that's surprising mm-hmm. because they're run by Rosalind Brewer, she's the only black woman running a Fortune 500 company. So I'm not sure what mm-hmm. their what their reason is there. Um, but then there's also this this uh, this quote in one of the pieces from the director of Howard University Center for Professional uh, Success in Washington D.C., saying that students at Howard want to know more about the companies that they may join, and I think that goes beyond students at HBCUs, right? I think that a lot of young for people, sure. a lot of people that are looking for roles and careers and companies, and certainly those that are younger, want to know. What kind of companies that they're that they're joining that they take this seriously and that they are transparent right so if you're not transparent about something yes. like this you're not going to be transparent with, with about a lot of things and so therefore yeah i think absolutely. it's a really important thing um really so uh uh you know very very happy to see this work being done by usa today
1: that's great thank you for sharing that rob um well that's it for the deets we will be right back with our guest sadia han
0: Welcome back. This week on Inclusive Collective, we're joined by Sadia Khan. Sadia is a Pakistani-American immigrant, human rights activist, and social entrepreneur. She's also the founder and host of an award-winning weekly podcast, Immigrantly, and the co-producer and co-host of Invisible Hate Podcast, which focuses on hate crimes committed against minorities. She holds a master's in human rights from Columbia University. Sadia has worked with UN Women and other UN entities at a small civil society organization focused on women's rights. She's also a board member of Hearts and Homes for Refugees. In addition, she writes for publications including Brown Girl Magazine, Yes Magazine, Medium, and The Globe Post. Sadia, we're so excited for you to join us on Inclusive Collective, and it's a pleasure to meet you.
2: I am so excited to be here, Rob and Nadia. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us, Sadia. I've been
1: really looking forward to meeting you and hearing more about the work that you do. Um I'll just dive in. So you started your podcast Immigrantly during the pandemic and now have interviewed and heard from over like 200 immigrants I believe um about you know their stories and we did an entire season on diversity equity inclusion in the startup and venture capital world. And one of the themes that emerged for us was many of the founders we interviewed were either immigrants themselves or, the, you know, children of, of immigrants. And you yourself are an immigrant, an entrepreneur. Um, what do you think about the immigrant experience, um, what that lends itself to entrepreneurship?
2: Oh, wow. That's a tough question. Um- When I think of immigrant experience within the context of entrepreneurship, I feel like all immigrants are risk takers Mm. um, because they leave Mm. their comfort zone, their countries of origin and decide to come to a new country and um, create a life for themselves there. And that's why entrepreneurship in a way feels like is intrinsic part of who they are and how they view the world. So... For me I I can talk to my experiences as an immigrant when I came to the US I had a degree in masters I had a masters in business administration so my hope was that I will end up in corporate sector but then obviously there were a lot of I guess obstacles in terms of visa and so many other things and just getting used to a new country but I ended up being an entrepreneur because that's something that I always had at the back of my mind, being that risk taker, having left Pakistan to come to the U.S. and start a new life here. So to your point, I guess all uh, immigrants are entrepreneurs in some way, shape or form.
0: Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to stay with the uh, couple a question about Immigrantly, the podcasts again, a uh, lot of folks that you've talked to on that show over the last few years. And you've heard a variety of stories. If you if you zoom out, what are some of the learnings that you've had from doing that show? Um, what are, you know, what are the what are the broader themes that have emerged, or things that you've learned, and the things that, as you you know, people tell you, ask you, what you know, what are your biggest takeaways from doing the show over the last few years? What what are those takeaways for you?
2: So first, I don't interview immigrants only; I interview mm. kids of immigrants, so second gen. I also interview people who have some connection to immigrant identity and I interview people of color because for me, to your point, Rob, the biggest takeaway is you cannot talk about immigrant identity and immigrant experiences in America if you don't intertwine them with conversations around race and identity and how America views people who are not part of the dominant Mm. population. So that's one thing, right? I feel like we cannot look at immigrant identity or immigrant experiences in silos. That's one. The other thing that I've learned is that for the longest time, and especially in mainstream Mm. media, immigrants are portrayed as a monolith group, right? All immigrants have same experiences. And sometimes while there is focus on trauma that immigrants go through, There is less focus on privileges that a lot of immigrants have or accrue to certain immigrants. So everybody's Mm -hmm. journey is different. When I came to the U.S., I consider myself as a privileged immigrant because I came here for college. I had means to apply and get visa and get a ticket from Pakistan to the U.S. to travel. Not all immigrants can afford those luxuries, right? So first we have to parse out what immigrant identity means, what kind of journeys different immigrants embark on, from undocumented immigrants to working class immigrants to professional immigrants. And not all of them are similar. Something else that I noticed is that immigrants and second gen kids of immigrants have very Different views of American identity, while immigrants consider themselves most of the time as outsiders, insiders. That's what I do. I see myself as an outsider as well as an insider, and I'm pretty comfortable with that. My kids, they are navigating a space where they don't know how to approach their identity because they are part of their heritage. So their identity has Pakistani heritage as one dimension. But then they are also American, as American as can be, right? How do they navigate those spaces, especially immigrants who are non-white and their kids? How do they view their space or their place in America? And how Mm. are they still othered despite the fact that they are born and raised here? Um, So a lot of complexity when it comes to approaching different identities within the broader ecosystem of immigration and its intersectionality with race and identity. Sadia, I feel like you could write my dissertation
1: for me because everything <laughs> you are, um, you know, saying resonates with me. Particularly this this idea around a monolithic identity. Um, my dissertation is focused on. Um, so I'm doing research focused on the Muslim identity, uh, Muslim professionals in the U.S. workplace. And what I'm coming to recognize is that there is not one monolithic identity, right? There's folks from various um, ethnicities, genders, locations. And then even when you go into the sects of um, Islam, right. folks that identify as different, you know, kind of, and even the level of practice. And there's just so m- it's so complex. Um, so I really appreciate you mentioning that. So you're speaking to a lot of my own particular experience which is interesting um we recently had a guest on our podcast her um her name was Nadia Alam we talked about her research that she was doing and observations where um immigrants are being overlooked um in diver kind of in the diversity equity and inclusion efforts within the workplace um particularly she comes from the biotech space and so i'm just curious and so- sort of you know your kind of data collecting as well, because you're speaking to so many um, folks, whether they're immigrants or second, first gen, second gen, like you had mentioned, um, what are, what do you think organizations and leaders can, can do to be more inclusive of the population of maybe first gen immigrants?
2: Wow, Nadia, that's a great question. And I have so many thoughts and I will go back to my immigrant identity because I think that's that's a good place to start, right? So mm-hmm. as an immigrant, as all of you can tell, I have an accent. I have certain mannerism that maybe people born here don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at America differently. Now, for any organization to be more inclusive uh, within its workplace, it has to make people who come from different ethnicities, backgrounds, accents, mannerism, languages, to make them comfortable beyond the performative allyship that we see happening all the time, right? So Mm. beyond adaptations of your logos and brands and celebrating people within certain time frames, for instance, and this is not specific to immigrants, but Black History Month, Pride Month, Mm -hmm. API Month, beyond that creating a safe space for people like me and others to express themselves and to bring themselves in its entirety to wherever they are wholly and fully and be unapologetic about who we are if i am in workplace and if i feel uncomfortable because i have an accent then the organization is certainly doing something wrong right um and being intentional about people's identities and how they integrate with their work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's what I think organizations can do, be have more tangible plan in place um, to make sure that people who come from different backgrounds and identities feel comfortable and have that sense of belonging in workplace. Absolutely. That's great.
0: Similarly, Sadia, you also work with uh, refugees and I'm just wondering, you know, based on some of your experience uh, there, what are some of the things that you see in terms of challenges for refugees in in entering the workplace or, 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 um, you know, and having access to employment opportunities?
2: So Rob, in terms of working with refugees, I used to work on asylum cases at Human Rights First as a consultant. And then through HHR, I also work with refugees. First, we have to recognize, again, refugees are forced to flee countries of origin. So yeah. right. So, understanding that mindset, their migration is not voluntary. So for instance, if I, cho- I chose to come to the U.S., A lot of refugees don't choose. So understanding that trauma that they go through, not just of alienation and being displaced, but also losing so much and not by choice, not voluntarily, right? So that's like keeping in mind that having tools that cater to their mental health and make it easier for refugees to transition into a new place. Now, mental health is such an integral part Of what all immigrants, including refugees, require, but specifically for refugees, right? Um, Then overcoming language barriers. A lot of times, when refugees are forced to flee persecution or war or conflict, they don't have the tools. They are not prepared to settle in a new country. So, giving them tools from language, overcoming language barriers, giving them access to knowing. New language? How can they integrate into the society? And I will emphasize on integration rather than assimilation because it's extremely important for everyone to understand that all of us, whether refugees or voluntary immigrants, we want to keep part of our identities. We want to celebrate them. We want to own them. So for me, being an American means that that's just one part of my identity and not fully. Me. Um, I want to retain my culture, my language, my heritage. So focusing on that and celebrating that with them so that they don't feel like outsiders or they are not abid.
1: Right. Or losing kind of their traditions and customs and right. culture right. from their home country, for sure. Um, Sadi, I want to shift into your newest podcast. We are big fans. Um, so invisible hate. Um, so this is a podcast about actual um, crimes that occur mostly within the U.S. What was um, actually so in your own words, give us a little bit more information around, like, what constitutes as a as a hate crime? Like. What are some of the common themes you're hearing or, or you know, from investigating, doing kind of this investigation? And, into and some why of the hate crimes that you've,
0: and why are um, you drawn to this? Podcast? Right. So if you listen to a couple of these episodes, I'm. Uh, I'm not a big murder person. Like I'm not. Uh, I I'm I'm against <laughs> murder. Uh, that's just a just a you know stand that I've taken personally. And so, what is? Uh, <laughs> I am too. Yeah, no, it's, gonna... So it's but it's just a very. It's yeah. it's obviously very intense. And, and the, some of the stories that you tell are very intense. And so, what what drew you to that? And then and then again, um, you know, what tells a little bit more about hate crimes. The
2: podcast started as a extension of two media companies coming together and their missions. So it's a joint production between Refillion and Immigrantly. Refilion uh, focused on amplifying Muslim voices in America. Immigrantly focused on creating nuanced narratives around diverse identities in America. And our goal through this podcast was to bring to light conversations or crimes that were either ignored by mainstream media or were presented in a very one-dimensional exploitative form. So that was the basic idea. I am a huge true crime podcast listeners, so please don't (laughs) judge me on that. No Uh, And I do have a few favorites, but to be honest, what I felt was, despite the fact I enjoy listening to true crime, I felt there was this commercialized exploitative factor that I just felt needed to be corrected. And I think invisible hate is an answer to that. It's a course correct kind of thing for um, mainstream true crime genre. So that's how we came about. In terms of stories, we are telling stories about all different sorts of hate crimes. So I'll go back to the definition of hate crime, right? So Hate crime is a criminal offense that's perpetrated against an individual or a group based on their perceived identity, right? So race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, sexual orientation, gender identity, disability. Um, That's basic idea of hate crime. Hate crime can take different forms, right? It can be verbal harassment. It can be violent assault, physical assault, or it can be something, you know, vandalism against Mm -hmm. an object rather than a a human or a person. Yeah, I guess that's the basic crux of it. Now, just an FII, I am not an expert on on criminology. Mm -hmm. Whatever discussions Asad and I, my co-host, have are based on the facts and the evidence that we have and then based on our own lived experiences, right? And I go back to being a Muslim in America. I faced so many microaggressions and I've seen people around me who've either been hate-crimed or have faced microaggressions. My own daughter, she was only 11 when she was called the Queen of Taliban and she didn't even know what that meant Mm -hmm. just because her parents are from Pakistan. So it is also an extension of our lived experiences. We are lucky to not have been hate crimed, but Mm. we've seen and been targeted um, in form of microaggressions, which is a form of verbal harassment and can constitute as hate crime, right? Sure, sure. Have you come across um,
1: a hate crime so far in your kind of research that has
2: occurred in the workplace? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm just trying to think and look back at all the cases that we've covered so far. I don't think so. We mm. haven't. Um, but I'm sure we will, right? Because the idea is to be as diverse and to be as holistic in terms of what we cover, so that people can relate to it, people can listen and learn from it. The, the yeah, goal through a- this is learning, right? That's a great point because,
1: you know, we've heard obviously just lawsuits right around even women wearing hijabs or asking them to be pulled off, I think, in in a McDonald's in Michigan or the Abercrombie Abercrombie case where someone was discriminated against because she was wearing a hijab. And so um, that just comes top of mind. And so are those considered hate crimes because they're one, there are acts of discrimination, like you mentioned, like microaggressions. This was overt discrimination. Um, but I'm curious, is that does that constitute as a hate crime as well?
2: It does. It does. Because it is, again, um, verbal harassment or microaggression based on somebody's religious identity or their outward ex- um, physical appearance or what they're wearing, right? So it definitely does. Although we haven't, we've focused... Primarily on physical assaults and violence that has occurred, but Nadia, it's a great point. We'll definitely look more into that.
0: And I do appreciate.
2: Clearly, I'm a hate uh, crime fan. fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, clearly, I don't like the murder ones, like the um, the the serial murder ones. But sure, pu- pull me into the hate crimes, and I'm there. I'm a listener for.
0: But for I do, life. I I do appreciate, Sadi so making that <laughs> connection to even. Microaggressions are just the you know the, the verbal attacks that are either intended or unintended, uh, and and just seeing that that's that they they all sit on the same spectrum, right? And and I think that I, I appreciate you making that connection. Sadia, we we always ask our guests for a resource that they would recommend, um, so, you know, either you know, something that you're watching or paying attention to these days, a podcast, book, something to help people better understand either the field that you're in or uh, or diversity, equity, inclusion in general?
2: So I'm reading this book, The Black Friend by Frederick Joseph, and I think everybody should read that. Again, something that I should have mentioned earlier, when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion, first of all, I don't like the term, I'm sorry. We need to come up with a better term because it just sounds othering to me, but we'll we'll use this term for now. It's also important to be held accountable. So you have to look inwards. You have to hold yourselves accountable as well. And that's something that I do on a regular basis. And being an immigrant, I wasn't and still am not familiar with American Mm. history when it comes to history of enslavement, history of genocide. And that's what I'm doing. I'm trying to learn more and become more intentional of how I approach these issues and questions. So I am reading this book by Frederick Joseph and I think everybody else should read. And again, find a book, find a podcast. Listen to King of the World. That's one of the podcasts that I am a huge fan of that chronicles coming of aid journey of a Muslim American kid post-911. It's an important series that oftentimes is overlooked, but you should listen to it. It's fun, it's introspective, and it's true. Love that. Um, and folks, definitely take a listen
1: to um, Sadia's podcasts, Immigrantly um, and Invisible Hate. Sadia Khan, thank you so much for joining us on Inclusive Collective this week. Folks, stay tuned. We will be right back with our calm reflections and raves and rants.
0: All right, welcome back. We just finished chatting with Sadia Khan of the Immigrantly podcast. Nadia, what a wonderful conversation with Sadia. What were you thinking? What, what, what were your big takeaways?
1: Yeah, you know, Sadia was great. I really appreciate her insight, not just into additional information around like her podcast. But also just like her knowledge um, of, you know, some of the experience, her own personal experience to the U.S. and then also just sharing what she's heard through various guests um, through Immigrantly, the podcast, and also just what she's been doing in terms of investigation with the cases um, related to Invisible Hate. Um, As she was talking, Rob, I did. I actually started to reflect on some of the microaggressions and hate crimes that I've experienced with in my family. And yeah, it's very traumatizing. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go into too much detail because it is pretty emotional, but um, it, I think just having the conversation with her reminds me that as traumatizing as some of these stories are, it is really important to share them um, so that people can recognize that it exists and that it's real for people and that there are resources um, available when a hate crime or an act of discrimination occurs. And then also, like, as a bystander or someone witnessing something, like, what what can you do? So just really appreciate the work that she's focused on in trying to, like, build more, you know, equitable, inclusive, welcoming societies. So, Rob, what did you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great call out. I appreciate that. The, I really enjoyed the fact that the Immigrantly podcast, uh, and it was something that I thought was really insightful just in terms of the choice that she made, was the fact that the podcast itself does not only focus on the immigrant experience, but also focuses on... The experience, the American experience of people of color, right, and people that have been othered by our society in some way, and and really uh, shows the parallels in those different experiences. And so, I, I, you know, delightful to talk to Sadia, and hopefully we can have her back on soon. Yeah. All right. All right, Nadia, should we should we rant and wait, rave. What should we do? Should we, what time is it? It's time to it's, rant and rave. Yeah. I'm gonna let's go. Let's go ahead and rant. First, one what? thing that I left out, just as I thought, as, as we were as we were th- talking, was Don Lemon, huh? I know. Th- here's my rant for Don Lemon, dude. Okay, give me the rant, dude. <laughs> seriously, dude. Oh my god. All right. So then, the real rant is. <laughs> Glad you like that. The real rant is uh, last week we spoke about Senator John Fetterman returning to work after a health issue and health scare. About how I was happy, yeah. how I was happy to see him back at work, and feeling better, and that I was just surprised by the ableism and the ageism being shown toward uh, Senator Fetterman and one Joseph Robinette Biden. Um, and so, well, yeah. a week later, a week later, uh, Fetterman has checked himself into a hospital to be treated for clinical depression, and hasn't gotten any better. Oh, okay. There have been questions as to whether Fetterman will step down, and again, the answer is no, I think. I think that that's really something that's up to him. People get depressed, Nadia. I don't know if you know this. It's estimated that one in three women and one in five men will have a major episode of depression by the age of 65. This doesn't mean that they shouldn't be allowed to return to their jobs, uh, and that they can't do their jobs once they feel better. In the case of Mm -hmm. uh, John Fetterman, depression is completely normal, based on what he has been through, and the sacrifices that he made in, in, to his long-term health in order to win a sentence. So, again, let the man work through his Against mental Dr.
1: health. Against Dr. Oz. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> if right, if like... he hadn't done this, we'd have Senator yeah. Oz. Uh, and so, so again, let the man work through his health issues, his mental health issues, and uh, leave him alone, and he'll be fine.
1: Thank you for sharing that. I also just, I think, like, there's a stigma around mental health. And so the fact that he is... Um, seeking help I think that is so important and really um, appreciate you know him being vulnerable and sharing that um, with the media Um, so for sure all right should we go to the my rave here Um, Seattle as of today became the first U.S. city to outlaw the caste system Um, so according to AP News it was actually just settled this week that um Seattle will go ahead and and has passed um this uh law to discriminate caste so the origins of the caste system can be tracked back uh traced back to India India some three thousand years ago um and the just I don't know if our listeners really know um or are aware but the definition of caste has evolved over centuries um India banned Caste discrimination in 1948, but the basis of caste um, is really like a poor treatment of people, um, not only in India, but you know it, it has shown up here in America where major um, Indian um, or Hindu communities are. And it's really just this, this type of discrimination that um, is centered around lower um, income folks, uh, it can also show up in education, politics, employment, and even in social interactions. And there also tends to be violence in, um, that exists, including sexual violence. Um, so really cool to see that Seattle is the first city to pass this law. Uh, fun fact, Brandeis University here in Boston uh, became the first U.S college to include caste in its non-discrimination policy in 2019.
0: Apple, I, I was also learned, uh, includes cast in their company non discrimination policy. So, this is really interesting. I think it's fast evolving. It's going to prompt a wider discussion. I've got a lot to learn about how you would think about this in terms of other imported bias systems. I don't know if you remember the Mexican American city councilwoman in Los Angeles last year, yes. reaffirming yeah. Mexican racial and socioeconomic biases. Uh, in one of her rants that was caught on tape and she was ultimately forced mm-hmm. to resign. Uh, so I think it's very interesting to think about how we think about race and discrimination and it's going to have to evolve very quickly. So uh, very, yep. very, very, very uh, positive development there. And I think people are- I'd
1: be curious sure. if Sadia would think that that's considered a hate crime, that example. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. we'll have to
0: ask her. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to bring her. her back on. Is she still here? <laughs> no, she's not. Okay. <laughs> All right, Nadia, thanks so much. That is our show. Inclusive Collective is a production of Refilion Media. We love hearing from you as we as we uh, addressed a listener uh, comment earlier today. So please send us your feedback at at com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to get in touch with either of us for consulting, check out Nadia at NazConsultants.com and Rob at Consulting.com. Thanks again to our guest, Sajikan. Khan. We'll be back with you all next week.
1: Be well.